This is the PMP Industry Insider Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome out to another episode of the PMP Industry Insider Podcast, where we take a look at what is changing in the industry and take it to the front lines to those that are driving those changes. My name is Donnie Shelton, as always, with you coming from Triangle Home Services, owner of Triangle Pests, as well as Triangle Lawn, as well as the CEO of Comarch, a digital marketing and sales services organization. And with me, as always, is the highly esteemed, very famous, very popular, Mr. Dan Gordon. Dan, would you like to say hello and introduce our guest? Hello, everyone. Uh, Dan Gordon, PCO bookkeepers, PCO M&A specialists, uh, fractionalized CFO work, as well as exit planning. And uh, today we are extremely excited to to have a guest. Uh, uh, our guest is uh, Vern Harnish, and um, we're going to talk about four decisions every business must get right with scaling up author Vern Harnish, as I said. And uh, so today we're really thrilled to speak with Vern best-selling author of Mastering the Rockefeller Habits and Scaling Up Rockefeller Habits 2.0. Vern is the founder of the world-renowned entrepreneurs organization, EO, with over 16,000 members worldwide and chaired for 15 years EO's premier CEO program, the executive program, which is held at MIT, uh, a program in which he still teaches today. He's also the founder and CEO of Scaling Up, a global executive education and coaching company with over 200 partners on six continents and has spent the past four decades helping companies scale up. So if that's not a, a good resume and a, a, a good intro, uh, I don't know what is, but uh, welcome, Vern. We're so excited to have you. Yeah, Dan and Donnie, good to be on. And by the way, all of us have those multi-million dollar executive MBAs from all of the mistakes, you know, that we've made. <laughs> that's really what counts over the last 40 years is all the bruises, you know, wow. we have for sure. That is totally true. And one thing I want to say before we get going here, if you've not read uh, Mastering the Rockefeller Habits or Scaling Up, those books are fantastic. I read them. I reread um Mastering Your Rockefeller Habits right before this podcast, just to kind of get reacquainted with, but it is a fantastic book. So I would highly recommend that you grab it if you've not read them. Um, but, you know, Vern, I was thinking probably a good way, you know, a lot of things that you have built and, and you teach and you talk about is, is Rockefeller. And so I thought it would be great to just lead off this podcast, just defining or at least talking a little bit about Rockefeller the man and we're not going to go through all the habits, but can you just just kind of real quick why this is someone that you may want to follow if you're in business? Well, in short, he became the wealthiest guy on the planet still today. If you set aside Putin, uh, it will set that as, as kind of a joke, but maybe not a joke <laughs> in terms of percent of, in percent of GDP. And he was like one of the original young entrepreneurs. He got started when he was 20 and built Standard Oil that became ExxonMobil and the rest is history. And what's interesting is there, he was quite disciplined. He was an accountant by training. And there were a lot of habits, routines that he put in place that we had been discovering, you know, decade, you know, century later at this MIT program that were important in scaling up that I thought, you know, there are some things that haven't changed for a hundred years. And those fundamentals, very much like Vince Lombardi, you know, who would start off every season. I don't care if he won five titles in a row and had returning seniors. He'd always start with, gentlemen, this is a football. 
And yeah. so that's what we're going to really talk about today are those fundamentals that Steve Jobs and others 100 years later utilized in their situations, no different than John D. Rockefeller. I also had hoped the Rockefellers would get upset with me and I'd get a lot of free publicity, but they ended up becoming <laughs> fans. I was one of the few that talked about their relative in a positive way. So start it. So scaling up focuses on four decision methodologies that you say every company has to get right. People, strategy, execution, and cash. So let's Let's go through each one of these and discuss the biggest challenge you see in each area today. So let's let's start with um, um, people. Um, tell us what that you think about the most it. common yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first, I wanted I wanted the, everyone to know that we didn't just make those four up. It really came from Jim Collins' work, Dan and Donnie, and when he said, if you're going to go from good to great, uh, you've got to get disciplined people engaged in disciplined thought strategy through disciplined action, which is execution. And then later he added the importance of cash, you know, growth sucks cash. So we didn't really just make this stuff up. Their research is based in these same four areas. Not that business is that well organized, but let's, let's move forward. So clearly the number one issue right now with people trying four to one in our surveys over the other three is attracting and retaining talent. Uh, you know, the engagement scores have been running 19% for 50 years until last year, it dropped to 14%. And if you're going to scale, you're going to need people. And so that's the first one we've been addressing. And the, and the short answer there is to find a strange fishing hole where you can find, go fish where there's fish. So we've got a client, it's not Facebook or Google, they haul trash. Uh, and they ended up finding a great fishing hole at these Irish disaffected gymnasiums where they had this young youth who loved to work out and they actually put a poster up, would you like to get paid uh, to work out ideal for athletes? Because what they really needed was the guy on the back of the truck who's willing in Galway, Ireland in this nasty weather right now, you know, blowing across the Atlantic to get up early, go out and run the route and make and do it well. And what's interesting is they went back and said, do we have anybody who loves that job? We didn't think he had one and they had, yeah, this guy, Gary Minoj, who was training to be the super welterweight kickboxing champion. And that's what gave Gene the idea. And by the way, do those guys want the truck to run slower or faster? The trash bin to be lighter or heavier, whether to be oh, yeah. good or bad. No, it's like, yeah, for sure. Balboa, bring it on. And right. they thought they were going to have to bribe people, you know, pay them a lot of money for that position. But they were ultimately able to scale from 60 to 1600 employees because they found this strange fishing hole. So I was just with um, a couple of franchisees in the rebass space. Uh, I was with a bunch of landscapers uh, at their big conference in St. Louis a few months ago. One of the interesting fishing holes, maybe you guys have discovered it yourselves, are short order cooks. Uh, they're, you know, in the hospitality, look, they're used to take, you know, dealing with the heat. They got to work crazy hours, you know, nights, weekends. And so your kind of job can be heaven for them. And we have, they're finding that that happens to be a great fishing hole. 
uh, for well, it's, it, it's interesting that you that you uh, uh, define it as a fishing hole. We we had a client who he would advertise on placemats at diners where hunters would go early oh, in the morning. JP, and yes, it, yeah, and and his ad was uh, small game hunters wanted to kill bugs, right? So small <laughs> game hunters wanted. And it was pretty darn effective, yeah. um, and you know they they got quite a few people. But I never really thought of it as a fishing hole. That that's very interesting. So um, yeah, so find, you know, find a consistent fishing hole, um, and then just realize people quit for two reasons: you're making me work with stupid people, or you're making me do stupid stuff. And that's why in that section we talk about the importance of really knowing how to interview and match culture. Uh, core values. So my partner, John Ratliff, scaled up what I consider the sweatshops of the information age. I mean, you guys think you got a crappy industry. What about call centers? You know, and you can get call center services anywhere on the planet, uh, Philippines, you know, East. And so his big thing was uh, making sure that there was a real core values match. They had seven core values and they had a very interesting question. Uh, they had an online application because they'd get flooded with, you know, 100, 150 applications. And nobody wants to sort through that. And they said, all right, here's our seven core values. Tell us a story where you lived one of these personally or professionally. And then they made the question optional, but it wasn't optional. And that knocked out a whole bunch of the candidates so they didn't have to waste their time. Uh, because there's really, to finish up, there's really four things you want to look for in hiring. The first one is will, uh, the will to learn, the will to persevere, the learn to push through the situation, learn to up, you know, will to upgrade your skills. And that's what Gene found in those gymnasiums. And that's what John found for folks who chose not to answer that question. They just didn't have the will. We actually have a, another client that's uh, recruiting out of athletic departments at, at uh, colleges in universities. They've already, those kids have already proven they've got the will. Um, the second is that they've matched the values. And whenever you've got that culture clash, uh, we saw that in a company that was making manufacturing pallets. They had a lot of workers from Vietnam, Mexico, Venezuela and the like, but there was a real culture clash going on and they were running 50% turnover every 90 days. And once we started hiring for that culture fit, we dropped that to about 18% turnover, which was great for that industry. Um, number three, then, they've got a history of just getting stuff done. Last is skill. That's why, again, I think you can go to short order cooks. Uh, we can teach you the business. Um, it's that other three things that we really want to look for uh, in people. And hunters, I love because, hey, they're up early. They're disciplined. There's a lot of rules in hunting you've got to do right, including siding properly and the rest. So I think it's a it's a good market to go after. So what 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 uh, a um, uh, the, the the company that was um, uh, with the Vietnamese guys and whatnot, what are the core values uh, that somebody who's going to be building um, or, or doing packaging? What, what are those core values that uh, that, that, that you that you look for? Yeah, you know what, one, one of those, you know, it seems trite, but the, the place got very clicky, clickish, and most half the turnover, most of the turnover was come from half the workforce that was new because 
the newbies were being beat on by the guys that have been around for a while and making them do the, the crappy stuff. And it's like pony, it's like pony boy shows up, you know what I mean? Oh, no, no, it, it, you know, this is, this is the real stuff that nobody wants to talk about. We want to talk about all this high level, but this is the stuff that's going on. And we were able to discover that by talking to some folks and on exit interviews. And we realized that one bad apple can mess the whole place up. And we had a couple of bullies in the organization and had to get rid of them, even though they were, seemed to be good performers. And that's what we mean, kind of uh, not really fitting uh, Joe's values as an organization, because he himself is a very caring type of person. The second thing that was very helpful there is we realized it wasn't what Joe was paying them. It's that they didn't know how to spend their money well. And by the way, that's senior executives. I mean, we know a lot of folks who are living paycheck to paycheck. And he brought in- broke at a different level. No, no, it, well, you know what? Those at the higher level broke more because they actually have access to, to um, credit. Right. <laughs> but he had a lot of his guys that were paying weekly rent and were buying groceries at the convenience store and not getting the best bang for their own buck that they were paying them. And so it was a volunteer thing on a Thursday night, but he really taught the guys, you know, management of their finances. And it was amazing when, and here's the key, there's no way your people are going to care for your customers or care for each other or care for you if they don't think you care for them. And it's those handful of things that Jerry South did scaling up to 15,000 guys parking cars. Uh, Jerry's right here at Annapolis, Maryland. He's got 2,700 employees now that's doing uh, repair on automobiles. I mean, this isn't Facebook or Google, uh, but these, these guys want to be cared for. And the uniforms, uh, you know, the, the trucks that they have nicely painted, taken care of, those kind of gestures. John at his call center would get every one of them when he'd acquire a company, buy everyone a new Herman Miller Aeron chair. By the way, the management didn't get him, but the employees did. And he'd wheel them in and he'd take the old broken down chairs, they'd burn them in one ceremony or throw them off a roof. But he did things to really care for the employees. And, and to wrap it up, the, the thing I love that Joe did most, you know, I, and a lot of your, your groups are in teams, whether it's in the, uh, in the yard work or, uh, or uh, in, the term, in the pest termination business. And he would have kind of a fun com com competition between the teams. And so we'd pull the guys together once a week in a warehouse. And on the back wall behind where Joe and his team would stand were the scores of the teams, just like you were playing fantasy football. And there wasn't any compensa compensation tied to it, but they'd razz each other, you know, and they mm -hmm. figured out a way to kind of keep score. It's like a quarterback efficiency rating of a team. And they could like poke fun at each other, big scoreboards. What he had on the wall that he stared at is leadership. They put on big rolls of butcher paper were the things that the teams needed in order to be more effective. And that's where you want to get rid of the stupid stuff that ends up creeping inside the company. So your job is to make the employee's job easy. And therefore, and the employee's job is then to deliver on the job to be done. 
And I loved how he set that up visually in his warehouse. By the way, they took that company from a million to 80 million. It's featured in Mastering the Rockefeller Habits. That's fantastic. So there you go. It's interesting. Yeah. The, the, uh, they don't have people doing stupid things with stupid people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. It sounds so, simple, but that's, that's pretty simple. But I, I think that the younger people like to have this gamification. I mean, it's funny. My son just bought a Peloton. Well, I don't want, for me, if I want to exercise, I exercise. Well, he's exercising. He's keeping score. He's going into the app to see how he's doing against everybody else. And it's just, you know, that's the way it is. So if you can gamify things, I think that that's, that's a pretty cool, um, you know, that, that, that's pretty cool. Um, well, to that point, one of the things we've been sharing is, you know, a lot, a lot of the guys' companies, they kind of talk about them like they're family. You know, we're like one big happy family. We want everyone to feel like they're a member of the family. But I don't know about you guys. I wouldn't wish my family dynamic on anyone. You know, you and I were joking about that, you know, before the broadcast started. And if anyone's watched Successions or Billions, they know that the term dysfunctional family is a redundant term. <laughs> so what is a good analogy? And by the way, Michael Dell did this in his factories. He, we think the best model is that of a professional sports team. We even have a client that every employee has a baseball card. By the way, it's a PE firm. It's not like, you know, it's a, it's a private equity firm, but every employee has a baseball card. So they got their picture on it and they got their stats. And what do professional sports teams have? They have coaches instead of managers. They have stats. They have big scoreboards. Uh, everybody knows real time how everybody else is performing. And one mm -hmm. of the things that the research is really clear about is peers care more about their peers than their boss. Let's just you know, face that fact. They learn from each other more than they do the boss. And so the more that you can set up that kind of esprit de corps as a team. So what Michael Dell did is he said, you know, Vern's work says we have to do these quarterly themes. He just picked the four sports. So, you know, finishing up January 31st, which is the end of their fiscal year, they'll have just come off playing football, culminating in the Super Bowl. And it's teams competing against a certain set of metrics. Then there's playoffs and then they, they declare a winner. Then it's basketball, first quarter, then it's baseball, and then it's hockey. And on Fridays, used to be casual Fridays, everybody got to wear their favorite sports jersey of their favorite you know, player. And that gamification of the business, I think is important for all ages. So let's, let's switch gears here now. So, so people is the first, kind of the first thing Let's yeah. let's talk about strategy. And, and in your book, you know, obviously you're a huge proponent uh, and, and you are for a one page strategic plan concept. How did you come up with this tool and, and why would you say that it works so well? Because, I mean, obviously we we see people do these massive strategic plans. Um, tell me, tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, everyone throws out this line. If we could just get everybody on the same page. Well, you got to have the page for everybody to get on. And I, I like to actually use the analogy of jazz. I'm a, you know, often scale ups look like jazz, kind of chaotic on the outside. Uh, but if they, I think companies either create great music or make a lot of noise. And when you create great music, you're three to five times more profitable than if you just make a lot of noise. By the way, that's why you want to do all this stuff. 
you know, John was in an, I'll come back to your question, but John was in an industry in the call center where the average profitability is 4%. He took it to 21.8%. And I like to remind him every year, that's 1% better than what Apple computer's profitability was. Uh, and we see that across all the industries that we work with, including the, the lawn care business, Happy Lawns, that I'm now an investor in Barrett Ursic's new company called Holganics that's serving the lawn care industry. Uh, he had insane profitabilities. And so going back then to the one-page strategic plan, if you look at jazz, creating great music is being highly profitable. And you need three things. One, you need some talented musicians. You know, they, they have the skill. Number two, everybody's playing the same song. I mean, you can have great musicians, but if they're all playing a different song, it's going to be ugly. And then they've got to play to the same beat. And that's why our meeting rhythm is the heartbeat of the organization. So that's why the one page. And look, that's about all you can communicate with most folks. So when you do a one page, so so we I've been involved with strategic meetings that are, you know, week long, follow up, browbeating, blah, blah, blah. How, what, what's the optimal time to formulate a, a, a one page strategy, um, you know, uh, simplistic that, that people can understand? Is it, is it uh, uh, you know, a, a, lo a lot of information and then kind of whittling it down or do you just, how do you form that? Yeah, well, I know it seems like a tried answer, but in many cases, it's a lifetime. I mean, it's one of the reasons why experience does matter. I've seen guys be very successful in certain businesses, sell it, think they've got like this golden touch and they go then into a restaurant and they get their head handed to them. You know, I've there's something about the experience and the and hard knocks that you've suffered and all of that that then feed into being very clear. Look, this is the number one thing we've got to do this year. And here's the number one thing that we've got to do this quarter. And therefore, this is the number one thing we have to do this week. Here's the sprint for the week. And waking up every morning and say, hey, this is the most important thing I got to get done today. And that setting of the play and having a playbook, which we've all seen here in the NFL you know, playoffs, though Belichick did get his head handed to him. He did. Uh, yeah, About time. Sure. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but, you know, you don't bet against that guy. He's He looks like he's got a young... QB that maybe if he can, you know, uh, spin him up can be competitive, but at least they got in the playoffs uh, wild card. So it's really your playbook that you put together, hone and refine after you've had weeks and, and decades of, of experience. So once you have the, the, um, the, the one pager, execution. Uh, it's about the process and a lot of people seem to get hung up there. Um, so how do you recommend that people take that strategy paper and put it into play and make it successful? Yeah. And by the way, I should go back and answer your question directly. Normally we do it in two days for an annual plan and then it's a day once a quarter. You just need to go get quiet and, and give it some thought and say, all right, here's the what's critical for us to focus on next, what we call the critical number. We got that from Jack Stack, great game of business. And then mm -hmm. how do we build an execution plan around that? And the thing you wanna focus on most in strategy to simplify it is what do we have to do every day and every week to make things easier for both the customer and for the employees? So if you really want a direction, and that's all Amazon did, 
you know, I know Jeff Wilkie, who just retired from Amazon, the other Jeff running in the company with Jeff Bezos. And every Monday they focused on, all right, what do we got to do to make it even easier for someone to buy something, for someone to open the package, for someone to get their groceries? That's what they're working on right now. And that is the simple strategy path for most of the business owners. What isn't easy about this business? And let's see if we can fix that. And if you can, 1% improvement every week, compound interest is your friend. So what does it take then to execute on it? And the thing that we're most known for that seems to be very controversial is the daily huddle. The importance of, and Rich, I learned it from Horst Schultz who spun up Ritz Carlton. Every employee in that company, and they're a 24-7, 365 company, would have a quick daily standup, the team that was getting ready to open up the restaurant. And we've got three questions. And it really helps everybody be aligned and know what we've got to do that day. So with Cruise, um, we really think it's important that you have that kind of daily. It's a little bit like Hill Street Blues, where on that TV show, everybody got in the room. They kind of debriefed what the day was going to look like. And then they said, go out there and be safe. Uh, that daily um, connection where you can communicate tactics is how we turned around our war on uh, the terrorists. General McChrystal did it, and it's how the Airbnb guys got through the mess that they had, is they wanted to do a daily huddle seven days a week. And John, by the way, had the same thing on a construction project. They ran behind budget, way over schedule, and then he said, look, I'm either taking you guys to court or all the subs involved in the project, we're going to get on a, we're talking about a daily huddle of seven minutes, 7.58 to 8.05, and that project got delivered in the next five weeks. So it's the frequency of the communication so you can address the issues and tactics before they get big. Um, so can you, what can happens you in that about, seven minutes? Yeah, what happens in that yeah, seven minutes? Because I, I see people start this and then all of a sudden it turns into a, a random, like it starts out really, really great. And then over time it kind of morphs into, well, this is what I did yesterday. And you know what I mean? Like it doesn't really, it, it loses its punch. So let's spend a little bit of time on that. Donna, you're absolutely right. And, and that's what I wanted to study between Rockefeller Habits, which I wrote in 2002, which I'm updating for 2022, and scaling up is people would start it and then stop it. And the number one reason was generalities instead of specifics. I mean, I need to hear names. I need to hear numbers. I need to hear issues, not what are you up today? Well, I'm doing a bunch of lawns. I mean, like, why do you keep asking me this stupid question? Um, I want to know, hey, I've got on schedule, you know, this part of the town, this num number of lawns were, um, and it looks like we've added two today to the, uh, you know, sequence. And by the way, I'm concerned because the two you added are making us have left turns instead of right turns. I mean, one of the things that Barrett Ursic really did using technology is made sure that his crews, like UPS, uh, their routes were optimized for right turns instead of having to make left turns. I mean, it seems crazy, but it made their job easier. They could get more lawns done quicker and they weren't standing in intersections, you know, waiting for time. Uh, right. The second question is any metrics. Uh, and But the most important is stocks. Hey, I'm, I've got an issue with a piece of equipment. Uh, I keep running into this recurring issue. I keep hearing this out on out on the job site. Uh, I'm still missing two people for my crew. Uh, we've got a company that manages properties. And once the leadership team heard daily 
the number of open positions. They got those filled in days instead of weeks. So the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And the more you hear the same thing, the more likely people are going to respond to it quicker than if I share it once a week or once a month. So that's the, that's part of the key thing. They were having issues with churn. And when they started reporting out daily, that problem got fixed in days. That's that's part of the key. So, you know, what are the dumb people I got to work with and the dumb things you're making me do very specifically, I want to know about on a daily basis. And then our job as leadership is to get that stuff fixed. And so seven minutes, if it becomes 10 minutes, I'm sure it's okay. When it becomes 12, how, how, uh, when, when does it become not okay? It's a minute a person. Okay. I'll be up, I'll be up with Bob Hendrickson who runs the Steelcase factories, 7 billion. They have a daily huddle, seven minutes, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. at their two shift changes, and they follow the same three agenda items. And they've been able to go from 12 million square feet doing 4 billion to a million square feet. What's, what's the real advantage here? The only way you're going to get on top of the wage pressure is to improve productivity. Let me say that again. Right now, we're all facing huge pressures on wages. So the only way we can deal with that is to improve productivity. And that requires real data and input and involvement of everybody. And that's the thing they did at Steelcase. They got all 3,000 employees coming up with YouTube videos that the rest of the employees can look at to do something better than some expert that everyone's got to wait around round, round for in order to hear from. And so that's the big change that's going on. That's the that's the the, the wage pressure is it it it's here for a while. And the only yeah. way we're gonna squeak out a profit is to become more efficient, which high tech companies did that by either outsourcing to to overseas or whatever. But you know, we're a service economy in the US. So how do we become more efficient? Is it it's route efficiency, it's 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 you know, um, um, you know, you've got to squeeze things out of your PL because you're adding labor costs to that PL. So in order to 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 end up where you started, you need to become more efficient. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. So I threw out a comment that MIT program that Barrett was in when he was doing his lawn care service business. And I said, the first companies that replace Excel spreadsheets with maps uh, is going to own the industry. And darn it, if Baird didn't go back and believe me. So he actually did a contract with Microsoft back when it was expensive. Now it's inexpensive. You can use, uh, you know, Microsoft's maps and Google maps. And that's when he began to use their billions of dollars of technology for a few pennies to optimize routes. He would map service issues, you know, so customers would call in and say, hey, my grass isn't green, you know, there are weeds. And so he could map that and he could see visually where he had hotspots, where he might be having an issue with the crew or a training issue and the like. When he would go do an acquisition, he could map that company's routes onto his and he could even value the acquisition better because he could see how would that either add or be be additive or not to his existing um, route structure? And that was all through some really clever use 
uh, Dan and Donnie of, of just maps and technology. It was called MapPoint back then. It's now called Bing Maps. And he's doing oh, the same thing with organics. Oh, yeah. No, I remember MapPoint. In fact, our, our CRM that we used back in the day, it used MapPoint, which is kind of yeah. funny. You had but but he, mapped, he mapped everything. And that's how we it, drove about – generally, we like to see – you know, he, he drove productivity up 50% over what was standard in the industry. And therefore, you can pay people 25% more, yet right. your cost per square foot or however you want to measure productivity actually goes down. So it's just making it's interesting. Yeah, interesting. We we do uh, M&A. And, uh, and so when we're providing information to these strategic buyers, we do zip code analysis on all of the stops so that they can overlay. And occasionally we'll hit one that, oh my gosh, this one, it goes in so perfect and will increase gross margins by many points. And that's where the value, that's, that's, that's when the valuations soar. Um, It's really interesting stuff. So, so, um, so let's do this. We, we don't have just a few more minutes. I want to make sure we get to, because all of this is leading to one big point, right? And that, and that big point is is cash right and and obviously you know in business when you know, a lot of folks talk about well you know the point of the business and i mean there's i don't want to i don't want to say profit is the only thing i don't but, but obviously if you don't have profit you don't have a business but all of this you know comes to cash and so let's talk about you know what reports metrics tools you know what do you recommend companies start with to analyze and improve in this area of business i, I know in our industry this is a huge deal, especially for for growing companies, because there never seems to be enough of it, especially if you're growing fast. And so um, recommendations for that. Well, there's um, a tool all of our coaches use called Cash Flow Story. So first, all, I want to make this point. I got to tell you, most business people I moved through that MIT program running very sophisticated companies had no clue how a cash statement worked and really even understood how their business model was impacted, uh, how their business model impacted cash. So we ended up partnering with a guy out of Australia, Alan Miltz. And in fact, we're running a webinar with him here uh, tomorrow. And on, and he wrote a piece of software that he originally built for banks. So banks could evaluate a business owner to see, do they really have the cash flow to pay back the loan? And he thought, all right, once he sold that for a gazillion dollars, maybe I should provide a similar tool to business owners. By the way, it's it's hundreds of dollars. It's not expensive at all. Our coaches will run actually a report for you for free. And so I'll give you an example. Um, using this tool to our last planning session with a client, the sales guy came in and he goes, hey, I got an idea. I If we lower price by 5%, I can increase volume 10%. Right. This is your typical. Let's just swing at the let's just guess. Right. Mm -hmm. This is kind of like what happened in all sport until data analytics came along. And I I do want to make a side note. There isn't a sports team that doesn't have a data analytics team now. This is why when we watch this, the World Series, this batter and that pitcher meant that the Atlanta Braves moved their outfield three and a half feet to the right. Not four, not three, three and a half feet. That's uh, this is why you saw the crazy Rams game where they kept going for fourth down in fourth and 10 and fourth and 10 and fourth and why they're going for two points because the data analytics is is out is is much more accurate than our guesses. 
And so the sales guy just says, all right, lower the price 5%, I'll give you 10% more uh, volume. So we put those numbers in the software and there are seven levers that you as a business owner can move to improve profit and cash. Starts with price. And I hope everybody realizes real inflation's 25, if not 50%. This idea that it's 7% is crazy. And if you don't get, and I just saw that when I took my, my son and his, his friend out to lunch yesterday and the lunch at the bar across the street costs hundred dollars, you know, they, the prices are going through the roof. And if we don't get on top of pricing, we're going to wake up a year from now and all of a sudden our margins are going to be gone. And so we just, we can play with price by a percent or two up or down. We can play with volume by a percent up or down. We can play with days accountable, receivable, inventory turns, and these seven levers. So we just put in this guy's business model, because you just dump the financials in and it tells you in a nanosecond. We said, you know, if you guys do that, you're going to lose a half a million dollars. Whoa. Best way to end a, a hot argument is to put a cold fact on it. Then we said, what if you did the opposite? What if you raised prices 5% and it caused volume to drop 10%? That added a half a million in cash flow to the business. And so there are these very simple, inexpensive tools that allow your business owners to play these what if scenarios and see what it does to both the profit, the cash, and the valuation. It calculates the valuation of the business as well. This would have dropped the valuation of the company $3 million by doing that boneheaded idea of dropping price 5%. And, and if you got the 10% volume and increase, which would represent an increase in revenue, they would have been growing broke. And that's right. the thing you don't wanna do is grow broke. The last idea that we think is critical is to really watch gross margin dollars per employee. A lot of guys look at revenue per employee, uh, profit per employee because of EBOT, uh, earnings before owner theft, is it necessarily that? <laughs> but, but the number that we really want you to watch is gross margin dollars per employee. And what happens is when you get, you're usually really efficient until you hit about five, six, seven million in revenue. And then you start to lose about four or five margin points. And four or five margin points on five millions, a quarter million dollars. And there's the quarter million you might need for some upgraded equipment or some pay raises or whatever. And so we like companies rather than lose 4% gross margin, work on training and development and productivity increase so that you increase gross margin 4%. That eight points on a million, let alone on 10 million, is 80 to $800,000. And it makes all the difference in the world. So that's something we encourage people to really focus on. And you know why they don't? Because You it's are preaching to the choir. Right. Oh, yeah. Preaching to the choir. I, I talk about if there's only one KPI that I can look at and it's the only one, it's gross margin. It's right. uh, that, that's that's it. exactly right. So uh, let's uh, we, we have a little bit of time left, but um, I wanted to. Um, you did a talk a while back and laid out three questions to ask uh, to stay cutting edge. And this this talk that you did was quite a while ago. So I want to ask if it's still relevant. So the first question is, am I asking the right questions? The second is, would I enthusiastically rehire everyone in my company? And the third is, am I 
out of my office 80% of the time. Can you explain, is that still relevant? Um, and explain, especially a third one. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it's really relevant. I Before I do that, I just want to go back and give one example on the previous. Our coaching sure. partner ran yep. telecom stores. Again, it's not Facebook or Google. He was selling at one point pagers, then Motorola flip phones, and then later, you know, iPhones. And his gross margin dollars per employee was running 75,000, which was industry average. By simply focusing on it, he took it to 275,000. And, and so I really want your listeners to know that in these plain old businesses, answering phone, manufacturing pallets, selling you know, phones, you really can have three to five X times uh, gains over the industry average if you'll get serious about some of these fundamental disciplines mm -hmm. that we teach. So let me go back to those three questions. Let's start with the third one since it caught your attention. And here, the best example I can give is Sam Walton. You know, Sam opens his first retail store in Bentonville, Arkansas. And uh, he would spend Monday through Thursday in his pickup truck, later in his airplane, um, 80% of his week, talking to customers, talking to employees and shopping competitors. And he'd only come back on Friday where they'd meet to say, all right, what did we learn? You're never winning or losing, you're either winning or learning. And they would then make changes to end caps and aisles by noon on Saturday. Speed forward half a trillion revenue later. And that's what the top 200 leaders do is they spend Monday through Thursday talking to customers, talking to employees, shopping competitors. And then on Friday, they'd get in the room and, and talk about it. So what it really means is you should be able to run the lawn care business, the pest control business, you know, manage it a day a week, maybe even a half a day a week. So that you're spending the rest of that time out in the field, um, visiting crews, seeing the work they're doing, talking to customers, talking to potential customers, shopping, you know, quote, seeing what the comp competition's doing and attending some trade shows in other industries so you can steal shamelessly ideas from their industry and put it in your industry. And that's the market-facing kind of activities. And you guys know, in your business and all businesses, you have the right lunch with the right person that's gonna give you some leads or an idea is worth the next 10 hours of doing email that you think you've got to do. So it's out being market facing 80% of the time. And eight, one book they ought to get, they don't have to read it, just set it on their desk called Never Eat Alone. So you ought to be having breakfast, coffee, first lunch, second lunch, third lunch, afternoon break with somebody. And one, one last example. Um, so one of my heroes is Carrie Smith. You know, Carrie founded Big Ass Fans. You know, first of all, you gotta love the name, Big Ass Fans. He changed his title to Cheap Big Ass. I have one actually, it's funny you say that. And what's crazy, what, what industrial manufacturer gets that kind of publicity, right? But he had a chance to scale it and sell it to a PE firm. And he and I were sharing the stage three years ago, just for the pandemic. And I said, all right, Carrie, what did you do that was really key? And he goes, hey, you guys aren't going to believe it, but every week, usually Thursday night, 
I would take five of my employees and their significant other to the nicest dinner you can have in Louisville, Kentucky. I think it is he Lexington or Louisville. I just went blank, but Kentucky is where they were based. Jeff Ruby's is the steakhouse in Louisville, Kentucky that you take them to. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and by the way, he would tell the guys, look, last week's crew spent a thousand dollars. Let's see if we can spend more because his employees would come in thinking, uh oh, this is a trick. I better order the cup of soup, you know, and leave it at that. And that's when he picked up the intel. That's when he got the truth. That's when he heard what really was going on in the factory. So he knew where he needed to go next in order to, you know, make things easier for everybody. Um, Gary Hirschberg did the same thing. He taught me, taught for me for years at that MIT program. He did Stonyfield yogurt, which he sold to Dana. And he said the key was he'd take one employee to lunch every week. And it was 45 minutes, 44 minutes. How's the kids? How's the family? You know, build a relationship. And then the 45th minute, he'd say, now, is there anything I should know? Because remember, the CEO is always the last to know. And they go, no, everything's fine, Gary. And they'd say, are you sure? Like, we may not have this lunch again for another year. And then they always say, well, yeah, Margaret's embezzling from the company. And we found some, like, rat hair in that, too. And, and look, it comes back to this. All wars and all markets are won through one thing. And I consider it the oldest profession. And that is intel, intelligence. And the second oldest profession was often used to get this. Has the first hand intel wins. So I want to come full circle. And I, I told you I spoke to a thousand farmers at Farmcom in uh, Kansas City uh, last week or two weeks ago. And I was telling the story when I was 15 and I just moved out to the farm. My dad wakes me up like at five in the morning. It probably felt like two in the morning, but I think it was five. He said, I want to show you something, son. And he takes me down to the local diner. And he says, you see those three brothers sitting there in that booth, corner booth? That's the Lewis boys. They own Edwards County. And they know everything's going on. They know what farms are coming up for sale before they're for sale. They grab equipment before any of the rest of us know it's available. They're over there deciding who's going to be sheriff and who's going to be mayor. And they do it because they have breakfast every morning in that booth. And that's what John D. Rockefeller did. That's what Steve Jobs did. That's back to this daily huddle. And they're over there sharing the intel that they picked up over the last 24 hours. And they're going to act on it sooner than any of the competition. That's who wins wars in markets. So uh, the first question um, is about my favorite quote. My second favorite quote, the greatest lesson of history is we fail to learn from history, which could be very applicable with what's going on right now with the pandemic. Um, but my favorite, my favorite quote is we have the answers. It's the question we do not know. And that's what we really try to do, Dan and Donnie, in our work is I know folks who run a business are pretty wicked smart. And given any question, they're going to figure out the answer. I'm just worried they're working on the wrong question. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what's this going to do to gross margin or, you know, how do we make things? So how, how do we make it so the employees feel like they're cared for? You know, how do we make stuff easier? You know, are there what is the stupid stuff we got people doing?
you know, these are in questions that are important. And I, and that's why you've got to get the right question in order then to get the right answers that matter. And then what was the second one? Would I enthusiastically rehire? Yeah, well, everyone in my company. That's, that enough said there. And yeah. we've all had the situation where, and I just had a guy that's in the construction business in my CEO boot camp last week. And he goes, I brought on this number two, and I thought he was going to be this high-powered dude. And he, he came, he, he was retired out of the Navy. And he was just used to having a big staff. And he came into this entrepreneurial company, and he just blew the place up. But what was tough is everyone else saw it before he did. And when he finally let the guy go, like all the rest of the employees are like, we wondered when you're going to get around to making that decision. Right. So one of the reasons why you need to have lunch every day with, you know, every week with an employee or take a group out to dinner and why you got to be out in the field seeing what's going on. It was only then that Joe McKinney picked up that he had a couple bullies inside his organization. And when he finally purged them and they were also pretty good performers. Um, and, but once he got them off the team, then everybody else started to kick into gear. And we've seen that with our favorite professional sports teams. They'll have this pig on the team who's just in it for himself and it ruins It's the Bengals. The Cincinnati Bengals have had a couple of those a-holes for a while. And it's why it's been 31 years since they finally got into the playoffs. It was interesting. <laughs> it was interesting you know, see that they actually built, beat the Raiders over the weekend, yeah. but they yeah. had to get rid of a couple of bad, bad apples. Yeah. Well, so, so here's an interesting one. So uh, I guess we could kind of close out with this, but um, you know, when you talk to, to people who have some gray hair, people in their fifties and sixties who have been around, right. You know, and yeah. uh, or no hair. Yeah, or no hair. The, the the world is going into hell in a handbasket, and 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 the pandemic, and the economy, and the political situation, and then you start talking to young people, and this is all they know, and they're very very optimistic. We see people in our industry growing businesses that, and and they're doing it at record paces. What do you see? What is what does the the future hold for the U.S. our economy, specifically for young people over the next ten years? What what, what do you think? Well, if history repeats itself, we're in for the roaring 20s. You know, watch out for 2029. Uh, mm -hmm. But this decade is going to be explosive. <laughs> and, and by the way, I think it's important for business people, uh, whatever business you run, to kind of know the stats of your industry. You know, I'm amazed how business owners know the stats of their favorite sports teams better than they know the stats of their world. And so just to give you a flavor, uh, the, the global GDP was 88 trillion in 2019. It's 94 and a half trillion in 2021. We had a little dip, but it's an extra, it, I mean, we piled on another six, seven trillion and it's up from 34 trillion in the year 2000. We've almost tripled the global economy in the last 20 years. And my view is if you can't find a way to make a million or a billion out of that, it's your fault. Uh, so so you referred to the Roaring Twenties. So so the, the, the Spanish flu came to an end and then you had the Roaring Twenties. And then after that, you had a crazy depression. This is why I said watch out for 2029. But look, that's yeah. 
That's that's a lifetime from here. Second of all, I, I don't remember who said it, but just never bet. Every, you said it. Every generation thinks the world's coming to an end. Every generation thinks the new generation is lost. You know, it's how many times do we have to see that's not been the case? Um, so, you know, it's the my partner, John Ratliff, convinced me of this. Just uh, and I'm very serious. What you don't want to do is watch the news. I'm, that's not the intel you right. want. Do right. Fox News, CNN, none of them are worth the, the paper they're printed on, as my dad would say. You want firsthand intel. And so he only does, he only watches two things, sports and comedies, you know. Uh, I like it. And, you know, like he, he's one of the few humans along with me that never watched Game of Thrones. I don't need any negative energy. I got enough of it I got to deal with in the real world yeah. uh, with my family and my in my business. And so comedies and sports, that's all you, I, I recommend you should digest that's and you'll amazing. be fine. You'll be fine. Well, Excellent. Vern, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I have taken a lot of notes and I know this has been very helpful for me. I'm sure all of our listeners are going to uh, get a lot of benefit from this podcast. Dan, any parting thoughts before we close out here? And I just want to remind everyone, um, Vern has a couple of books. Um, there's, you know, we'll put a link out to his website uh, on the pmpindustryinsider.com website. We'll have show notes out there. Again, it's scaling up and mastering the Rockefeller habits. Um, but, but Vern, I just want to say thank you. This is this has been fantastic. Dan, any any parting thoughts here before we this, close out? This has been outstanding. I really, really appreciate it. I really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, we'll have to do it again another time. And uh, uh, just thank you so much, Vern. But if yeah. I, if I can mention, well, I absolutely enjoyed it. I um, hope somebody found some practical things. A couple of resources. I've got a brand new book out called Scaling Up Compensation. Getting yeah. your plan. It's you know it's your largest one of your largest expenses, and a lot of a lot of guys like pricing. Get, just get it absolutely wrong, and it's because you're dealing with people and they're psychological, not logical. It's a very quick read, 122 pages. So I'd encourage folks to take a look at that and get your comp plan. And it's got a lot of practical examples of small to mid-sized companies. Oh, that's uh, then, fantastic for our industry. Yeah. You can always go to scalingup.com. All of our tools and stuff up there for free. So that's all you have to remember, scalingup.com. We'll, we'll put it on the show notes. All right. All righty, folks. Well, Vern, thank, again, you, so thank much. you very much. Yeah, we have reached the end to another of our podcasts. Again, if you like this episode or any of our episodes, please remember to give us a rating or review. And with that, we're going to close this out. Vern, thanks again. Dan, we'll see you next time. Bye, we'll Donnie. See you all so later. Much. Take care now. Bye-bye. Take care.